Amen. This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are, we are rounding into the final stretch of this letter that we've been in pretty much half a year, since, since uh, early in the summer. And we're coming down the stretch to, to one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. It's a passage about the resurrection of Jesus. It's the longest passage about the resurrection, the most detailed one. It's the only time Paul really comes at his friends in Corinth uh, for a misunderstanding they had of a theological issue. Most of this time we've been spending in this letter, he's been correcting the different problems they had in their practice, the way they were treating each other. Their community was messed up. Now he's going for something that was wrong with their belief, something that was sort of cancerous at the heart of their faith, that if it was allowed to continue, would trickle down all through their practice and continue to bring their community down. Today we're going to talk about death and resurrection. And we're going to talk about how death and resurrection are at the heart of Christianity. Apart from death and resurrection, Christianity isn't worth your time. One of the, one of the descriptions of the human condition that's resonated with me most is that we're all stuck in a kind of paradox. We're stuck in this paradox where we know that we as humans are different from other parts of the created world. We feel that. We know that we have an ability to think most of the time in ways that other animals don't. We have the ability to reason, to think about abstract ideas, understand them and try to apply them. We know that we have ability to create things, sometimes beautiful things. We know that inside each of us is a person that's not like any other person. That even among the difference that unites us as humans in the rest of the world, inside each of us is a difference. That we stand out from each other. That in these ways we're godlike. But we also know that we're part of this natural order. We're different in the natural world, but we're still very much a part of it. And so that means we know that we come into being at a point in time and we pass out of the world at a point in time. And in this sense, we're no different from a weed that you pull out of your yard or a cockroach that you crush with your feet. We're no different than a goldfish you pay 50 cents for, put in a bowl for a couple months and then watch die. Here's the way Ernest Becker put it. In one of my, a book that I've really begun to enjoy, it's from back in the 70s, won the Pulitzer Prize. It's all about death. The psychology that death plants into us. Here's how Ernest Becker put this, this paradox we're stuck in. He said, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order blindly and dumbly to rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. Now, and maybe this doesn't terrify you. Maybe you don't think about it that often. I mean, most of us don't think about it most of the time. But Becker, what Becker and others like him would say is that this, this consciousness of our death and our fear of it is actually always in our minds. 
that it lies behind, that it, it lies in the background and drives most of what we feel and most of what we do. That what we feel and do is driven by either the desire to overcome death if no, by no other means than by accomplishing something great that's going to outlive us, or our desire to deny death by entertaining ourselves so that we don't think about it, by consuming more and more stuff so that we can push it into the background, by accomplishing more and more things that distract us, by relationships that promise us meaning and fulfillment. But always behind everything we feel and everything we do, always back there, is this sense that we're going to die. And, and this reality of death, the one that's built into all of us just by nature, this reality is also at the heart of Christianity. It is the reason, in a sense, that Christianity exists. The Bible explains why we're split in two. It tells you that you're right when you sense that you're different from other parts of the world. It says you are because you were made in the image of God. Unlike anything else in this world, you were made in his image to reflect him, to represent him, to live for him. You are more in that sense than just a hunk of organic material that's here for a while mysteriously and then gone. But the Bible tells us that we choose to try to be him rather than be like him. That all of us have made a choice to take his place rather than represent him. We choose to live without him rather than under him and through him. In Christian, friends, this is the key. This is what, this is what all of this sermon is going to be about, Okay? Christianity is only worth your time. It is only worth your time because Jesus can save you from death. Christianity is only, let me say it again. Christianity is only worth your time because Jesus has the power to save you from death. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a chapter where he's responding to their denial that there's a resurrection. Apparently they'd gotten up some sort of view. We don't get a lot of detail about it, but they, be, they didn't seem to doubt that Jesus had been raised, but they doubted that anybody else would be. Maybe they thought you just went off into a spirit existence. Maybe they thought death was the end and you just pass into nothingness. We don't know exactly. But Paul writes this chapter to convince them that if they give up the resurrection of the dead, they've given up Christianity. The whole thing falls apart. It's empty and worthless. It's delusional. It's one more thing that we try to fill our lives with to pretend that we're not really going to die. You may as well just go to the mall and spend what money you have. Paul begins this chapter, which we're going to read here in a minute, by reminding them of what he and everybody who'd ever told them about Christianity had said. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He really was dead. His body went in the ground, but he's alive now. The scriptures predicted it would happen. We've all seen it. We saw him in the flesh. We saw him eat food. Yeah, he can pass through walls now, so his body's different, but it's real. We saw it and touched it. He lists off people who had seen it. He's reminding them that they believe this. And then he turns, he turns his argument to the place where we're really going to drill down today and explains to them that if this isn't true, 
if Jesus didn't really come back from the dead and really eat fish with you guys and really, and really allow Thomas to touch his hand, his actual hand, and see that it was real, then our faith is vain, our preaching is futile and worthless, and you're still in your sins. So eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. If Jesus isn't alive, the whole thing falls apart. That's his point. He sets it up in the first half of our passage for this morning, and then he explains why that's the case, why it is that that Jesus' resurrection is the key to Christianity offering you anything that's worthwhile. And that's where we want to drill down. Why? Why is it that the resurrection is the key, that Jesus couldn't just die, or he couldn't just teach us good and wonderful things about how to live in this world? Why he had to die and be raised? We want to understand that. Because that's the key not just to our faith and our hope, but it's the key to our Christian life, what we're called to in this world until Christ comes. So we're going to really drill down on verses uh, 20 through 34 this morning. I want to read the whole passage first, though. If you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read beginning with verse 1 of chapter 15, and then I'm going to read all the way through verse 34. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And what do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to talk first about the resurrection and the Christian hope from verses 20 to 28. One of the things you might have noticed about the verses just before that, it's that paragraph where he's saying, he's sort of showing you the dominoes that get tipped over. If first the dead aren't raised, then there's a chain reaction that doesn't lead anywhere good. That means Jesus isn't raised, and if Jesus isn't raised, and here's where we want to focus in, then here's what it means for you. It means that you're still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Their faith might have helped them feel more at peace while they were alive, but now it's doing them no good. Death is the end for them. That's the connection to the Christian hope. And then he says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's the resurrection and its connection to the Christian life. And we'll look at it in a minute. First, I want to talk about the hope. There's a couple things we've got to, got to explain, a couple details here. Especially how Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, that means you're still in your sins. Why? What's the connection between him coming back from the grave and, and you being freed from your sins so that your sins no longer define you? I mean, didn't Paul just say that Christ had died for our sins? Wasn't it his death? That handles our sins. That's what he says in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. And, and Readers who also are familiar with the New Testament would know that sacrifices for sins happen all the time, but the animals don't come back. The sacrifice itself is what handles sin, or does it? See, here's the thing. Here's the, here's the background to this passage that makes that phrase make sense. The reason that All these deaths had happened through Israel's history for sin. All of these sacrifices that kept having to be made over and over again is that sin was never really handled. That these were temporary solutions. Even better, they were pointers to something that was still to come. But that as long as the sacrifice stayed dead, the power of sin stayed powerful. It had not yet been fully removed. And in some sense, it still defines all those who have sinned. If Jesus had died and stayed dead, just like any other sacrifice, then what would be said there, by that fact, is that Jesus, like every other sacrifice, is at best a temporary solution to the problem of our sin. He can't fix it. 
Paul points the way for us by connecting Adam to Jesus. This is in verses 21 to 23. This is a, this is a, a crucial connection. It's the first place that Paul makes it. He does it in a couple of his other letters too, uh, especially in Romans. Uh, Romans 5 is the one I'm thinking of. But this is the first place that he does it. And what he's saying, it, what he's doing here is connecting Jesus, his death and resurrection to the story that the Bible's been telling from the very beginning. He goes all the way back to Adam and says that it's through Adam that death came to all people. What's he talking about there? You'd have to know the story that's told in Genesis near the very beginning of the Bible. It's in that, it's in that book, just three chapters in, that we learn God had, had created this person called Adam who was supposed to represent all of humanity. He created him as a sort of stand-in for all of humanity. Think of, think of the way that an Olympic athlete sort of competes on behalf of his nation sort of stands for his nation in that sense. And that's something like the way that Adam works for all of humanity in the Bible's story. That Adam chooses not to trust God, not to take what God had provided, not to accept God's care and God's authority. He was warned in that story in Genesis 3. God tells Adam and Eve, if you choose sin, if you choose not to trust me, but to go your own way, then the result of that choice will be death. That's what he says. Death is the defining result of sin. Is what he, that's what he says. And sure enough, they choose not to trust God's words, but to go their own way. And at that moment, death sets in. Death becomes the defining reality for humans ever since. And all of us ever since Adam have made the same choice that he, does, that he made. And we've made it every day that we've ever lived We have chosen to live like God isn't the authority that he is, like he can't protect us in the way that he he claims, like we can do better on our own. And all of us, just like Adam, face death. That's Paul's point in this connection. Death came through Adam. It's not natural. It's not just the way things are. But it is a powerful and a just sentence that hangs over every one of our heads. Paul talks about it as the last enemy. That rings true, doesn't it? Death is the, is the last, the final, the ultimate enemy that waits for all of us. That every other struggle that we experience in this life is just a little foretaste of that final one. That every joy we experience in this life ends, it goes away, it dissolves because we know death waits for us. I mean, just think about it. Think about death as a, as a kind of thief that steals away everything that's valuable to us. I think it's an interesting thought experiment to do. I've asked you to do this before. Think about what it is that you really want. What is it that makes you happy, that drives you through your days? What are your objectives or goals or ambitions? What gives you pleasure? What life would you have if you could pick any life? Now, imagine those things. And now imagine you get whatever that thing is. And now imagine that you've just gotten that thing and you find out that you have stage four cancer and you've got just a month left to live. Now, you tell me, which one of those two occurrences defines your day? It's not what you got, what you accomplished, what was fulfilled for you, at least for a moment. It's the fact that you now know you will die. Death steals the things that we want most from us. 
And even the joys we experience don't last because it is coming. And it's only our short-sightedness. It is only our numbness from seeing that our death is no less certain and barely less imminent. And therefore, the best we could become or accomplish or obtain is pointless and empty. Only numbness and short-sightedness keeps us from seeing that just as clearly as we would if we found out we had a month to live. And all this is true unless, unless Paul says Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is the first fruits. As an agricultural term. I don't know if you guys are from an agricultural society. I was raised in one. It's a great way to grow up. If you don't know about first fruits, it's not exactly the language we would use, but the, the crops have to go through a lot of struggle to actually come in. There's a lot of heat, there's a lot of drought, there's a lot of too much rain, too little rain, storms, a lot of things that can keep a harvest from coming in. And to people who would have read Paul's letter, those things could have been the difference between life and death. The first fruits were those first signs that the harvest had come, that it had made it, that the crops did not get destroyed, that they were coming in this year and we would live for another year because of them. So the first fruits are celebrated. They're an occasion for joy. And what they are is a token of what's still to come. Because now that, now that those first fruits are here, we know the rest will come too. And that's what Paul's trying to say about Jesus. So he says, just as in Adam all die, death spread through him to all. So now through one man, Jesus, resurrection of life comes to all those who are in Christ. He's the only one who's experienced it so far, but his experience is a first fruits that shows the harvest is coming. Jesus' resurrection has set something in motion, in other words. The first fruits are never an end of themselves. They are just a taste of what's to come. Jesus, as first fruits, has set a chain reaction in motion that nothing can stop at this point. Now, Paul doesn't get into the details here. But what he's, what he's saying in, in referring to our sins, that we're still stuck in our sins if Jesus isn't raised, and what he's saying by, by knowing that through Adam, death came to all, but now through Jesus, life can come to all. What he's saying is that Jesus' death has accomplished what it set out to accomplish. Death enters into the human story as a penalty for sin, and as long as people keep dying... What it tells us is that sin or the penalty that brought death into the world is still not fulfilled. Think about how long a person serves a jail sentence. They serve it until the crime has been paid for, right? They are justified when they're able to walk out of the prison cell and not until then. And as long as they stay in that prison cell, the penalty is still there. They still haven't outweighed the guilt of what they've done. And so as long as we are subject to death... And the penalty that brought death into it, the, the guilt that brought death into the world, it's still in effect. It still hangs over our heads. It still defines us. But if Jesus is alive, if he really is alive, then that means the penalty that costs us our life is no longer ours. It means that there is no sin, however great it might be, that can keep you from life in Jesus. It means that when you are convicted of your sin, when you wake up, and your first thought in the morning is regret over something you have done and you can't undo, 
that your response to that is not to wallow in it, but to look to Jesus, to remind yourself that he's alive, and in his resurrection is the proof that that sin, however serious it might be, is no longer yours. It's Jesus' resurrection that gives us freedom from guilt in life because it proves to us sin can't define us anymore. And it's his resurrection that gives us freedom from fear and death because we know that even if we have to pass through it, it's no longer our final end. That's the rest of this paragraph that Paul points out. He talks about the chain reaction, that that Jesus has been raised as the first fruits. That means all the others are going to be raised. And it also means that now as a living As a living God over all the universe, Jesus is taking out everything that stands between us and the future we were made to enjoy. That there is no authority or no power, however great, however helpless we might be against it. There is no authority and no power that can separate us from him. That he is taking them out one by one and that the final enemy to be defeated is death itself. And when he's done that, he hands the keys to the kingdom to his father and he says, here it is. This is the world we were made for. That's happening. And his resurrection proves it. Everything hinges here. If Jesus is alive, he can make us alive. And if he can save us from death, there is nothing in this life that he can't redeem. There is no pain that you can experience. No sorrow, no disappointment or regret that Jesus can't turn to dancing because he is alive. And the question is, did that really happen? I wish we had time this morning, friends, to talk about the reasons to believe that it did. Those reasons are strong. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than for most anything else we believe about the, about the ancient world. You never get proof for this sort of thing from a laboratory. There's no experiment that's going to prove it to us. You get proof of historical things by testimony. You get proof by checking chain, event, chain of events, what's happened. What, did, what was changed because of this thing that happened? And on all the metrics that we use for knowing what happened in history, all of them point to the resurrection of Jesus with an amazing clarity and, and comprehensiveness. I would love the opportunity to talk to you about this. If you're not a believer today and you're wondering what it might take for you to get over that hump, to get past your doubt and trust that Jesus can make good on his promises, the resurrection is the place to go. The resurrection is the key. If it happened, you have to fall in line. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. If it didn't happen, Jesus isn't worth your time. So go do whatever else you were going to do. But it did happen, friends. It did happen. And, And we can show you that. We can't convince you by reason. But there are great reasons to believe. And we'd love the chance to talk to you about them. There's reason to believe Jesus is alive and therefore he can make us alive. Now, if we believed it, what would it look like? What would we look like if we really believed it? And that's the last thing I want to talk about this morning with what time we have left. That's the last paragraph of our text this morning. Paul talks in verse, beginning in verse 29 and through verse 34. He starts to point out the things that they are doing or that he is doing that would be ridiculous and foolish if Jesus wasn't alive. Basically, his point is that the Christian life itself, if you live it in the way it's meant to be lived, the Christian life looks Foolish and pitiful to anyone who's watching it if Jesus isn't actually alive. Or it should. And that's where we've got to really drill down today. I I get that that what we said on this first point maybe is a little bit abstract for you. 
Um, it, it, it's definitely the place where Paul lays out the sort of theory behind the gospel and how it works, why it works, what must be true if its claims are going to hold together. But, but the gospel is way more than a simple theory. It's way more than just an abstract idea that's interesting to talk about and that many of us maybe are convinced of. It's what someone has called a self-involving belief. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, there's no way that it doesn't have a claim on all of you. A self-involving belief is the difference between the belief that cancer is a horrible disease that takes lives, right? All of us have that belief. That belief becomes a self-involving belief when you're told that you have cancer. The belief that fire can destroy a house and the belief that your house is on fire, your house is on fire. That's the difference between a normal belief and a self-involving belief and for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is a self-involving belief. It's more like knowing your house is on fire than knowing that fire burns down houses. I don't know how great that analogy works, but that's the one I had time to come up with. Believing in Jesus' resurrection is like knowing your house is on fire. <laughs> when you internalize it, here's the point. When you internalize the meaning of Jesus' resurrection, it starts to change you. It changes your priorities. It changes your ambitions. It changes what makes you happy and what makes you sad. It changes your expectations out of this life, out of other people, out of the life to come. Verses 29 through 34 start to explain it and unpack it. Now, in verse 29, he points us towards an argument that is notoriously difficult to understand and that we don't have time for today. He refers to something called the baptism on behalf of the dead, is the way our, my, my text translate it. Uh, some, some say baptism of the dead. Um, the, the most sort of surface reading of that is that people were being baptized on behalf of someone who wasn't alive anymore. That's the way the Mormons practice it. The Mormon church has that belief, and you can be baptized many, many times on behalf of people who aren't still living. I don't think that's what it means. Uh, I think it makes more sense to take it as a reference to the meaning of, the symbolic meaning of baptism that Paul develops in other places, like Romans chapter 6. Those who are in their sin are always referred to by Paul as those who are dead. That's how he talks about death. So baptism in general is, bap- is always baptism of the dead. It symbolizes death in and to sin and new life to Jesus. So he could just be saying here, why do you even bother with baptism if Jesus isn't alive and he can't make you alive? I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough verse we don't have time for today. What I really want to point you to is his next example, which is his own life. He says in verse 30 and, and the rest of the verses, he describes to you what his life is like. Why am I in danger every hour? I die every day. He talks even about something, something probably metaphorical of fighting with beasts at Ephesus. He's like, why, why am I laying my life on the line? My skin is in this game, right? This belief is costing me something. And if it's not true, then I'm not just disappointed. I'm pitiful. That's what he said earlier in verse 19. If Christ is not alive, if we're only hoping in him in this life, we're pitiful. We're not just disappointed. Paul knows that he has put his life on the line. That he has chosen not to get money from his ministry, for example. Chapter 9. He's chosen to set aside his rights for no other reason than that he wants to see other people come to know Jesus. He's chosen that he's going to be a fool in the eyes of the world. And he doesn't care because he believes Jesus is who he claims to be. But if, Paul, if Jesus isn't who he claims to be, 
And the fact that Paul came to Corinth accepting his foolishness and not trying to change it, the fact that he wasn't playing their status games and trying to climb their ladder, the fact that he didn't insist that everybody treat him in exactly the way that he thought he should be treated, the fact that Paul is willing to even die physically so that as many people as possible can hear about Jesus and have a chance to come and believe in him, well, that's just stupid if Jesus isn't alive. He's pitiful. That's what he's trying to say. His lifestyle flies against everything Corinthian society values and he is fine with it because a high rank in Corinth isn't what he really wants out of his life. A high rank in Corinth is not going to stop him from dying. And what Paul's describing isn't just the lifestyle of the apostles. He's describing here the basic calling of all Christians, of anyone who owns Jesus' name. If you believe that the resurrection is true, it is self-involving. It should take over your life. So the question we've all got to sit with, the question we've got to sit with is, would would any of your friends who know you well and who don't believe in Jesus, look at the things that you spend your time on, at the things that make you happy and sad, describe the goal or ambition of your life, and look on that with pity? Would they feel sorry for you? And not just because you hold on to some primitive belief that you know, they wish you could be freed from, but whatever, it's not changing anything anyway. Would they feel sorry for you? Would they see your life as thrown away? I think that would be a great question for you to ask each other in small groups this week. Think about it, pray about it, and answer that question honestly. Friends, if our lives aren't pitiful, in some way, shape, or form, because we believe Jesus is alive. If our lives don't look anything different than the lives of someone who doesn't believe Jesus is alive, then we don't really believe that Jesus is alive. Chances are, we fit more into the, into the last couple of verses that Paul, where Paul paints a picture of what our lives should look like if Jesus isn't alive. You know, if, if there's no resurrection from the dead, get as much as you can for as long as you can out of this world while you still can. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Then he says that, that strange phrase about bad company, bad company corrupting or ruining good morals. I think what he's saying is that you guys are living, just sort of taking your cues from the people that you live around. You're just sort of going with the flow and you're about what they're about as if there's no difference between Jesus being alive or not being alive. And he tells them, wake up! Wake up from your drunken stupor. You are going to die. And if Jesus is not alive, then the things you're using to dole yourself to that reality are just empty and worthless, and they won't hold, and they won't stop death. So wake up. What we want is a counterculture. What we're praying towards in our church is a counterculture that looks just foolish. Just ridiculous to people who don't believe Christ lives. But that is the only reasonable response to the fact that he is alive and that he's coming for us. Father, we, we can't believe this in the way we were made to unless your spirit gives us life. We need the quickening power of your grace to show us who we really are, 
to cut through the deception that we have willingly chosen and built for ourselves and to drive us to Christ by the reality of death. Do not let these friends stay in despair, but give them the hope of Christ, that there is life in Him, that there is freedom and joy in this life and the one to come because Jesus lives. Protect us from the drunken stupor we live in all too often. You have made us for yourself. And we want to live for you. So change us by your power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.